a podcast called Intrepid, Her Majesty and Right of Pod Edition. And this time I'm in charge. <laughs> um, so, um, and and there's, a, there's a reason to this, but just if you haven't listened to these before, uh, basically we've been doing a series of podcasts about Canada and its relations with the crown and how that has gradually uh, evolved. And with me today, of course, is everyone's favorite crown expert, Phil Lagasse. Hello. Hello. And uh, Craig is not with us because suddenly, apparently, the crown isn't good enough for Craig now that like it's in the news and there's Harry and Meghan involved. Uh, Craig is obviously doing his own Megxit. <laughs> He's doing. It's he's doing a Craigsit from the Craigsit from Himrop. Himrop, yeah, it's Craigsit. Um, but basically, I mean, this entire series has been about uh, you know we have this Canada has this relationship with the Crown, and that has increasingly been codified. But it, actually, it's still really important in a number of areas, such as national security and defense. And we've seen that. We even saw that. Uh, you know, we we're just talking before we started in the mandate letters, which is about, um, you know, the fact that we have to figure out what these crown powers, these executive powers are with relations to how the Department of Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces use and collect and store intelligence. And it's also interesting to note, even in the UK too, there the Johnson government has promised to do a, a real review of uh, the relationship between Parliament, the government, and the courts. And the Crown prerogative is is um, specifically mentioned as one thing that they're aiming to reform. I can't imagine yeah. why. Yeah, no, <laughs> After, exactly. You know, so a year it's of parliamentary uh, chaos. It, it's back in the news. <laughs> it's back in the news. You're, you're cool again, Phil. Exactly. I'm, right. Okay. So, you know, I should say, of course, you know, we are high above the Rideau River here at Carleton University, but the, obviously the reason we're here today is because uh, suddenly a lot of these crown issues, which are sudden, you know, sometimes theoretical, I don't want to downplay it, uh, but basically the news that Harry and Meghan, you know, so Crown Prince Harry, uh, what, what, what is his official title? Uh, well, he's got a couple. I mean, he's uh, his Royal Highness uh, Prince Harry. Prince Harry, so we can also, call him Prince Harry. Yeah, but he's also the, the Duke of Sussex. Right, right, the Sussexes, that's right. Yeah. So they're coming, <laughs> you can tell my, I'm using my expertise. Uh, the Sussexes may be coming to Canada, and so, you know, we actually may have royals in Canada, and I'm kind of curious as to how, you know, this is kind of in some ways the rubber hitting the road for a lot of theoretical questions. Right. I think it, it's it's a really interesting issue. So let's uh, try and get a few things out of the way. The first one is that uh, not that many people are giddy. Not that many people are furious. A lot of people are ambivalent. But <laughs> See, uh, this, is the, this is the news stories that yeah. Canada's either excited, ambivalent, or furious yeah. that they're coming. But we, I don't think we can get away from the fact that for a certain segment of the population, we saw this when the news broke, uh, a poll was done very quickly to say, do you want Harry to be governor general? And, I totally do. And you had 60% of people saying that they did. right? So there's there's some cachet to this, whether it's celebrity, whether it's uh, simply what I identify as kind of uh, Canadian national pride of saying, you know, they like us, they really like us, they want to live here, like in spite of the fact that, you know, we're not maybe Los Angeles, we're not London, but there's an interest in living uh, probably in Toronto or somewhere in BC. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it is a, a means of kind of feeling chuffed about uh it's a good use of the it. word chuffed. yeah, yeah. Um, does it extend beyond that well i think this is the the question that we're going to get into right so okay so we've already talked about harry's titles uh let's let's start at the basic level here does harry have a status in canada so culturally and historically 
and symbolically he does. So there's a couple things to get out of the way. The first one is um, it is the British royal family. We take the British monarch as our own. And as a result of that, through historical relations, we've established a number of royals that have come here to Canada, uh, setting up um, either being honorary colonels-in-chief, uh, having relationships with Canadian charities, and taking part in royal tours to kind of reinforce the uh, the Canadian connection to the British monarchy. As a result of that, for example, uh, Harry has his own standard, he's got his own flag and things like that in a Canadian context. The reality, though, is when you look at it from a strictly legal perspective, there's, there's no way to really hook him into the Canadian constitution in any way, right? He's a member of the British royal family, and by tradition, we therefore take the British monarch as our own, uh, and therefore, there's this kind of indirect connection, but you can't say that he has any status in Canada, right? There's, we don't have a royal family. We don't have dukes. We don't have princes. All we have is the monarch. Um, we have in our oath of allegiance uh, allusion to heirs and successors, but really the way the courts have kind of dealt this, with this recently is to either tell us that the oaths are largely symbolic or to tell us that uh, the heirs and successors are determined by British and not Canadian law. Can you is was there a specific court case that talked about this? Right. So there's two of them. So when it comes to the oaths, uh, it was a, an interesting question. This has been litigated a few times, but the latest one was a case called McKeeter. And basically, the, the Ontario Superior Court kind of came down and saying, uh, the reason that you swear an oath to the Queen is that she's at the apex of the Canadian state. She personifies the Canadian state. And yes, it involves perhaps a, a violation of your charter rights to free speech, but it's an acceptable violation in light of the fact that of what she represents in the Canadian Constitution. The Canadian Crown. Yeah. That right. then went up to the Ontario Court of Appeal, and the Ontario Court of Appeal really didn't uh, – want that charter challenge to, to be acknowledged. So they came at it from a different direction and effectively ruled that, no, you're, you're swearing allegiance to kind of a symbol of Canadian democracy. So it kind of stripped it very much of any content that the uh, uh, Judge Morgan in the Superior Court had found, right? His, uh, for those that are interested, uh, Edward Morgan's ruling in, uh, in McKeeter is actually really worth your time as a good kind of exposition of what the crown is in Canada. Uh, so they, but the uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal basically left us with this idea that it's symbolic. It's not a foreign monarch. It's not really a, a physical Canadian monarch. It's a stand-in concept for our Canadian constitution, for our democracy. So when you're swearing to heirs and successors, you're just kind of swearing to the continuation of Canadian, the Canadian constitutional construct, right? Sure. So you're kind of stripping it of uh, of meaning. In the royal succession case, the issue was, uh, do we have our own laws of succession? Do we determine our monarch according to our own laws? And the federal government, um, using a, a 2003 ruling, uh, again, from the Ontario Superior Court, said, no, what we have is just a simple rule, uh, a rule of recognition, which is that we simply take the British monarch as our own monarch. Some of us kind of argued against this, saying if you look at it historically based on what we did during the abdication where we specifically requested um, that the British government extend its law on the abdication into Canadian law. Yeah, and this was like a whole thing that we discussed, uh, like, uh, yeah. was, it, was it in the last episode, exactly. the second so we, last episode, which is was kind of like a part and parcel of this scheme to kind of 
somehow make Canada seem more independent than perhaps it, what the British thought it was. Right. So basically, you know, when you look at the statute of Westminster and you look at that, the preamble to, to that statute, it was a, um, a compromise derived at between uh, the Canadians, the South Africans, and the British government leading up to the statute of Westminster. And effectively, from the Canadian point of view, Odie Skelton and Ernest Lapointe, who were negotiating it, didn't want this idea that the British determined uh, who was in line for the Canadian throne, right? They didn't want this idea. They, they felt that it was important that Canada have legislative control over these things as a matter of autonomy. And other countries, if, if I read your Twitter feed correctly, other countries do, like Australia. Right. So at the time, Australia and New Zealand didn't have this idea. They hadn't incorporated the Statute of Westminster. But then when you fast forward in 1936, uh, Skelton, LaPointe, and Mackenzie King used this in December 1936 as an opportunity to demonstrate Canadian autonomy. They reject the British argument uh, put forward by the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin that, don't worry, you don't have to do anything um, our, our legislation of the abdication automatically extends to you. So they reject that. They force the British to extend that into Canadian law. So it's kind of weird that like the Australian Canadian positions have actually switched. Exactly. Well, and this gets back to something we talked about, kind of the loose ends that were left at, after 1982. The Australians and the New Zealanders now have all these old British statutes from Magna Carta to the Royal Marriages Act, Act of Settlement, all that's in their own law. Um, so they had to change their own law to change the royal succession laws in New Zealand, the same thing. So when you're dealing with kind of Harry and the other royals in the Australian and New Zealand context, at least they've got some kind of hook in there, right? Their law identifies them. It doesn't mean they're citizens. It doesn't mean they're, they're, they have any special status, but it, at least to, to be blunt, their crown has some meat to it, right? It's got something, some legal footing uh, in terms of the monarchy and the, the royals in their legal system. And what we have is just a, a basic rule, right? So we didn't want... Uh, didn't want to have to go through uh, a constitutional amendment. We didn't want to say that we have laws that are subject to a charter challenge. So the best way to get around this was to simply say, no, um, ultimately the British were right in 1931 or 1936. We do simply accept, accept uh, British law as, as our own in this case, or more specifically that it, we don't have our own laws of succession. We just take whoever the British have as their monarch as, as our own. What that so means for Harry, though, is that he's he's just a British prince in line to the British throne in our context. He doesn't have any meaning, right? So all, when you take the citizenship of both and you take the royal succession ruling, I would argue that basically we've hollowed out the crown, right? We've kind of – or at least the monarchical component of it. We've kind of just left it either as a symbol or the simple rule that we have with the British – and as a result, it kind of leaves these other royals in like a really odd position in Canada. Like if he shows up here, he's not a representative of the queen in a right. formal sense. That's one of the – yeah, okay. So that was yeah. kind of the point. Yeah. Like he's but he's no, not though. No. I mean he's like formally, you know, if the other royals show up, they kind of are uh, a representative in a personal sense, right? While the governor general is a the representative of the queen of Canada in a formal sense. But nonetheless, the other royals, when they come here on tours or whatever it is, can say that they're here kind of representing the queen in, in her personal capacity, as it were. But now if he's just kind of coming here like half the year, um, it, it doesn't really apply that way, right? And I think this is where it's going to get difficult for so people. So if he's not on official business, he's yeah. just kind of hanging out. Right, because usually when the royals come here, they come at our invitation, right? So the oh, government okay. of Canada says, okay, we want you at Canada Day. Uh, so we're going to pay you, you're going to get on your, on your 1980, uh, challenger jet. 
and you're going to boot over the Atlantic, maybe three or four stops. <laughs> and, wow. and you're going to kind of attend our, our ceremonies and we're going to pay for your security and you're going to take part in all this. Um, and because we're inviting them, therefore, you know, we're paying the costs. But now he's coming at his own behest, right? And it's unclear whether or not he wants to take part in any events. And even more, what makes it even more complicated is even, let's say he does want to take part in events. Does he displace the lieutenant governor of Ontario and Toronto for a lot of these things? Does he displace the governor? I was going to say, like, can he pull rank? Well, it's not that he's pulling rank. It's just that if you're like a charity in Toronto, right, and you want to raise money, like, who are you going to turn to? And not to denigrate the lieutenant governors at all, but it's simply forbid. you're going to go with the the more kind of obvious celebrity, right? right. Um so I think that's where it gets a little bit awkward, right? Because he does have this kind of royal role, the monarchists, I think, in, in the country are going to want to kind of allude to the fact that he's got this special status. In law, he really doesn't. And then it kind of makes law, life a little bit complicated for the actual representatives of the queen in, in Canada, potentially. Potentially. So, the, the, But that, that depends on how things work out with the queen, which uh, I want to get to in, in just a second. Um so I, I, one of the things you, you've say, said in the media and you've said on Twitter, and I find really interesting is the fact that because, okay, so so his status here is unclear, but one of the things that is clear is that because he is a member of the royal family, he has no citizenship. Right. Not of Canada, not of Britain. No, no. He, he, has a, he is a British subject. Oh, he is a British subject, but yes. is he a British citizen? Well, basically, yes. I mean, th that's their conception of it, right? So he is a British subject. Oh, he is. Okay. Who, the person who isn't is the queen herself. So the queen uh, has okay. no citizenship. And this is why you'll see a couple of uh, lawyers on Twitter and other places saying, well, the queen's a citizen of Canada, therefore he automatically gets it through law. Well, no, it's, she's not a citizen of Canada. That's the issue, right? She didn't have it uh, when she was simply Princess Elizabeth. And when she became Queen of Canada, uh, she personifies the state. Therefore, she personifies the authority that grants citizenship. But she herself is not a citizen. Uh, and when you use the language of subject, because she gives citizenship, right? She like, doesn't. Well, she's not the recipient of it, right? Like it's something that she bestows, right? As as the personification of the state. It's think about it like with the passport is kind of the best way to 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 view it. When you open your passport, it's kind of saying you know Her Majesty is granting you this kind of access to to other countries. And effectively, she doesn't need one because she literally is that authority. She just shows up and <laughs> she is the passport, right? <laughs> As I always tell my students, she's like, I'm here, let me in. And they're uh, like, yeah, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it, it harkens back to this personified sovereignty that we used to have, right? Which we no longer really have, but we still have all these pockets of monarchs throughout the world that, that can claim this. Um, but in, in Harry's case, right? I mean, the, the queen is, is not, can't be a subject to herself. Right. Right. And that's the But only Harry one. can be a subject to But the he queen. is subject to he is the subject of his grandmother. Right. So he can be a British citizen. He is. Like all, all the British royals under the monarch are. It's only when they when the the Prince of Wales or the the first in line ascends to the throne that they undergo a metaphysical transition and they become a timeless legal person, which is the monarch that they lose that attribute of their natural capacity. They no longer have it because they don't need it. So they, it's, it's a very kind of theological concept. Basically, they become a different entity, right, when they become 
the monarch. They become the sovereign. They take on different uh, legal attributes. But all the people kind of around them and under them don't benefit from that. So the queen, for instance, as we saw, you know, if you're the independent kind of put together a mashup of different songs of like the queen driving without her license or without a seatbelt. And it's like, how, did, how can she get away with that? Because you can't, you can't arrest her. <laughs> you can't charge her with anything. But... Everybody else, the law still applies. Right. right. Okay. So, so okay. So he has British citizenship. Okay. So that would give him some status, um, presumably, upon which he could then apply for some kind of residency in Canada. Well, this is where the the, the immigration lawyers are having a bit of a field day with this, right? Because they're saying, on what grounds is he going to apply? So, as we saw on the Globe this morning. It seems to be that he'll probably be a dependent upon Megan's application because she has a better chance given that she's worked uh, that's here. That's too funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, the, the other way is... Are and by the way, I should say this morning is January 14th, so yeah, who knows where who this knows? is going. But, but it's uh, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, the, I think the, the big issue that people are going to be watching for is are, is the government going to get, grant them a special exemption on some of this stuff? Or are they even going to request citizenship? And that and that's highly political because the whole idea of, of who gets into Canada and why is is very politicized for reasons we won't get into right now. But yeah. that's but the minister does have that. It's, is it a prerogative power? No, it's a it's a statutory authority where okay. the uh, the minister is allowed in kind of special cases of of prosecu- uh, persecution or and this is the key kind of clause here they can grant citizenship to somebody who's shown exceptional service of value to Canada, and that's where I would argue that do we have our own law of succession thing comes in because you can say. Okay, if he were in Canada kind of legally recognized as being in the line of succession to the Canadian throne, you could say that's a form of kind of exceptional service, right? But in the absence of that, it becomes tougher, right? Um, like we've done some, some odd things around this. So we have, for instance, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, is a member of the Privy Council. Prince Charles is a member of the Canadian Privy Council, uh, even though they're technically not citizens. So, and the Privy Council is not the Privy Council office, which is downtown. That's the executive right. arm of it. The Privy Council is this kind of uh, ad- theoretical advisors to the government. It's the fo- the formal body that advises the monarch. And um, whenever you become a minister, you become a member of the Privy Council. And other um, other notable Canadians have also been put in the Privy Council. So sometimes you'll introduce members of the opposition into the Privy Council if you want to share cabinet confidences with them or national right. security information. Right. But this is the thing that you can put at the end of your your name. You could be like, yeah. you know, Phil Lacasse, PC. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> suffice to say. Hope springs eternal. Uh, yeah, no, uh, that's not going to happen. So, um, okay, right. So Privy Council. Right. So, so basically, Prince Charles is a member. Prince Charles is a member. Prince Philip is a member. So we've always kind of had this, this really awkward situation where you know, we have some of these key royals, colonels in chief, uh, they're involved in Canada, they're involved in Canadian uh, charities, and in, in the case of Charles and Philip, they're actually members of the Privy Council. They're members of the Order of Canada, you know, anyway, it gets complicated. But this then leaves the question of, of what do you do with these royals that are, you know, not the spouse of the sovereign, not the first in line to the throne, he's like sixth. So what is he in Canada? And the short answer is legally, he's nothing. He's just a British subject. So he can't just show up? Well, he can show up, but he has to follow all of the, the immigration laws at this stage, unless the minister gives him a major exemption. And as we just said, that's a pretty political decision, right? Like, yeah. you might decide to do that. But I think, you know, everybody 
is going to be very cautious in the next little while to figure out, are they going to stay here long term? I wonder if Marco Mendocino ever figured that he'd be thinking about this. No, exactly. (laughs) To be quite honest, I I think the the Canadian position right now seems to be wait and see on some of these citizenship questions because I don't think we know if they're actually going to stay here long term. They might decide, you know, Los Angeles is a better place or, you know – they might find it a little too awkward with the Los Angeles does have better food trucks. Well, yeah, I'm just, you know, look, I mean, if they really want to be financially independent in the sense of no longer relying not only on the British treasury, but even more importantly, do they still want to be dependent on the duchy of Cornwall, which is an independent, uh, private estate that is owned by the by Prince Charles. And the purpose of the Duchy of Cornwall is to grant financial independence to the next in line to the throne. And the question then becomes, is it appropriate, even though it's not public funds, it's private, should you still be kind of paying them to be half royals? Because there's certain benefits. It's like, yeah, it's not a public resource, but they it's private. Yeah. But there's still some people make allegations that there's that they still benefit from certain favorable Thanks. Right. So, I mean, and, and the, the, I think the big issue right now is this whole question of their cottage, right? So their cottage was paid, the renovation of where they live in the UK was paid by the sovereign grant, which depending on your leanings is either the monarch, the monarchy paying itself or the British taxpayer. You know, that's as, a as someone issue. who lived in the UK, can I just yeah. say however you feel about Prince Charles, yeah. like the mince pies that come out of that place is amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the, delicious. The, it's the, so good. The Dutchy stuff is good stuff. It's so, so good. Okay, <laughs> it's good not, stuff. And we're not sponsored, but you know, we're not also against sponsorship. But, but we, if anyone's here, but we're not. We're not against being sent free shortbread. I um, s- well, definitely the pies. Okay, <laughs> um, but let me get to this. So, so I guess then, can I? Uh, oh, sorry. So you're we're talking about like no, but anyway, money. all this to say. So I think there in the UK, there's going to be tension around. You know, they're still living in a cottage that was paid for by funds that were drawn from the treasury. You can debate whether or not that's taxpayer money or money from the crown estate. That's a separate issue. But there's still going to be kind of this, okay, are they benefiting from public funds or not? And even if they only benefit from Prince Charles's private estate in the short term, is that really financial independence? Or does financial independence mean they're totally uh, separate from any money coming from either Charles or the Queen? And if that's the the aim, right – then maybe Los Angeles will end up being kind of the the better place to make money. We don't know. Okay, so I mean, because uh, so as we as I said, we're, we're recording this on January fourteenth. Uh, we heard yesterday that the Queen announced that they she she agrees with Harry and Meghan's request that yes, they will come up with a new relationship, but they still have to work that out. Uh, whatever relationship the royal family works out, will that automatically apply to Canada? No, I mean, this is why the Canadian government is involved in these conversations. Um, Ultimately, the reason Canada's there, my guess is, is you do have to work out some of these thornier issues. Number one, who's going to pay for their security? Uh, Because royal protection can't just show up in Canada with their sidearms and assuming they have them, I don't know if they do. But they, you can't have British security services in Canada with no jurisdiction trying to protect the prince. Uh, not only would they have no jurisdiction, but the RCMP probably wouldn't be keen on that. So that's number one. Number two, are there private security firms that meet the requirements that the British have for royal security? And people say, well, 
what does it matter? Well, it does matter. I mean, Lord Mountbatten was killed by the IRA. So in this the 70s. was um, a, a member of the royal family, very yeah. close to Prince Charles, yeah. um, who uh, was targeted as a kind of revenge killing by the Irish Republican Army. Uh, apparently, it affected him greatly. Right. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, an and incident of that magnitude on Canadian soil would be. A national security crisis. Right. And you're the, the you're the intelligence expert, but my sense is, you know, with Brexit, if the whole Irish situation heats up again, and I've, you know, spoken to Irish colleagues who've, who have been telling me that, you know, people are arming already. We don't know. Um, is the, the situation does seem extremely serious. Right. And is, is the IRA even on the Canadian intelligence radar? Like, would we, do we even know? Would we know who to look for? I mean, it's... It's kind of we're not in a like we haven't looked at that right. The last time we were worried about Irish nationals was the Finians, right? Like but that's not entirely true. We <laughs> okay, have worried exactly. about we have worried about IRA. I mean, the, the like this is totally off topic. Yeah, but, I like, don't know the um, Irish Republican Army fundraising yes. in in certain pubs and you know things like that were were, were concerned. But I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean that was a concern in the '90s. Then we yeah. had the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. and and it's not really been a priority since then. But all this to say, so that's a factor that you know will be sensitive to the people who are charged with ensuring royal security. And the other piece of it is why did Diana, you know, uh, died in part because she kind of let go of her royal protection and therefore she ended up in a situation where, you know, the royal protection services probably never would have allowed her to do what she did on that night and to better protect her against the paparazzi and all this and all that. So this is these these are material things, right, for this family. They're they've been hit by it recently and the people who protect them have are acutely aware of the fact that it remains a threat. So it's a big deal for Canada as well because there's going to be an expectation. Can the RCMP do it? If not, can private security firms do it? Who's going to do it and who's going to pay for it? And then you got a, a whole bunch of other issues. So as we discussed, like there's probably going to have to be discussions with Heritage about what is their their role. Like, are they doing royal events? Are they kind of do they stand alongside the GG? Do they take some of the things that the GG doesn't want to do, and maybe they'll do it? Uh, same for the lieutenant governors. Like, but presumably, if they're stepping back from royal duty, that would be a royal duty. So if you're going to kind of like step back, as it were, like, what does it mean to step back? Well, I think they're cutting down on the events that they're expected to do, but apparently they're still going to do some things, right? It appears like they're still going to do international events. They're still going to, you know, show up for certain events in the UK. They're just taking fewer of them. And based on my conversations with royal specialists, it seems that the real issue here is they just want to cut off media access to them. They want to be much better placed to decide who takes pictures of them, who they speak to, and who reports on them, right? So that seems to be kind of a core concern for them. Um, but they're still going to participate in some formal things. Then within Canada as well, we've got to figure things out like, okay, uh, who's responsible for an emergency repatriation to the UK? Um, is that something that the UK is going to be responsible for? Is that something that Transport Canada is going to be responsible for? Um, uh, who's responsible for emergency medical? In all likelihood, that's going to be the Canadian forces, right? Again, here again, this issue of are you allowed to pay for medical services in Canada? You know, I mean, like all these things that you got to have to figure out, right? Uh, it's six months. Yeah, if you're are, a resident, are they allowed? Are <laughs> you they have, to have it for like three to six months? I think before yeah. you qualify for health insurance. And are they allowed to put their kid in school? Right. And this is the the other kind of issue that that comes to the fore. So a lot of this stuff is going to have to be ironed out. That's why the Canadian government is involved. Right. And 
I mean, so I guess my next question was, could he work here? But I guess the thing is, if he doesn't really have a status here and it's attached to his wife, it really just depends on the visa they get. Right. I mean, apparently the minister can also grant them permanent residency. Maybe they'll be less controversial than granting citizenship. Uh, so there's probably other options that, you know, the very smart minds right now in, in PCO and various departments are thinking through. Um, but, you know, in a, in a sense, it reminds us, and this is what I always kind of think about when I think about the, the monarchy in a Canadian context, we don't really control it. And it suddenly kind of comes at us sometimes out of the blue. And as you might imagine, I think our listeners would agree, this really wasn't the week for this to happen <laughs> in light of everything else. Well, right? it's been, it has been busy. Yeah. I like, mean, I'm, there, the Iran situation yeah. obviously is, is paramount, uh, but then you're also having to have people think about this. Uh, mind you, I, I, one suspects that, uh, the people who handle Iran are not necessarily people who handle crown affairs. No, for sure. But you can imagine even the prime minister having to answer questions about this. Yes. You know, like this is maybe not the the ideal time to even have to address these issues. And yet here we are. Right. Um, so I guess then this kind of, you know, we mentioned this at the top of the podcast, which is, uh, can't he be the governor general? Legally he can. Uh, there's nothing. Because anyone can Right, because the, the prerogative of the queen in that regard is constitutionalized, it's protected, and effectively they're, they're, you can't, or and we haven't, imposed particular limitations around uh, qualifications, right, pertaining to citizenship. And that makes sense given that prior to the mid-20th century, all our governors general were, were British. Um, so hypothetically, legally, yes, he could be. But you've stated, I mean, I think I've seen this on Twitter, that you think that this would be actually be a step back. No, it doesn't make sense. I, I don't think it makes sense either for him or for us. Um, we've Canadianized the institution. Uh, we expect it to be eminent Canadians. We expect it to be biling bilingual people. We expect it to be kind of a, a, a person who represents the nation to, to itself. Um, and therefore, somebody whose connection to Canada is tangential at best, who maybe does not speak one of the official languages, who has already declared that he's less interested in the spotlight, and therefore, or at least in, the, in formal roles, why would he want to do that, right? And then the, the, the big question, which all younger governors general should ask, or potential governors general should ask, what are you going to do after? Right? How do you go from the second highest office of the state in Canada, and then you got to find something else to do? And this has been. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe if you've been like a like an heir to the empire, maybe that's not so much of an existential question. No, it's less of an issue, <laughs> but it just delays the it delays the inevitable question of what are, what are they doing with their time, right? And then it raises a whole bunch of issues around conflict of interest. He can't, on the one hand, be trying to make himself independently wealthy, while also serving as the you know, uh, representative of the head of state. <laughs> like, that's, well, it's awkward. But I mean, like he could be like David Johnson and just make nice picture books. Sure. I mean, like, but <laughs> that uh, seemed to have worked out. But well it, for him. it's just, it's, it's not really commensurate with the role today. I, I don't think he'd be interested. And frankly, you know, like the citizenship question, what would be the grounds to do it? I mean, the, the current governor general's probably still got three years in, in her appointment. Um, and, you know, would he want to do it? Would we want him to do it? I don't think it's realistic. And he doesn't, uh, he apparently just also does not speak French. Right, which is a problem. Right. Um, so I just want to, I just have a quick question, but I want to keep on this governor general issue because there's a second 
non-kind of royal issue, but we need to talk about. Um, but just quickly, you something you, you mentioned on Twitter is that the you're, you said, I'm happy the Canadian Secretary to the Queen is back in PCO, yep. presumably to help answer a lot of these difficult questions that we were just talking about. So what is the Canadian Secretary to the Queen? So the Canadian Secretary to the Queen is kind of the direct uh, liaison between the palace and the prime minister, right? So the prime minister has a special relationship with the sovereign. Uh, he is her first minister. And even though there is a, a representative of the queen in Rideau Hall through in the governor general, it's um, the governor general kind of represents the queen. Uh, symbolically. Uh, symbolically. But when it comes to kind of practical matters of government, you also – because that can't be the governor general's role and we'll get to that a little bit more, uh, you need somebody that has – or at least you've wanted in the past, I should say, to have an official who's able to serve and deal with the palace directly on behalf of the prime minister. Now, that office has in the past been at Heritage, largely concerned with organizing royal tours. Under the Harper government, it kind of became uh, a thing unto itself within the Privy Council office. Um, and so the PCO, not the Privy Council, the Privy Council office. Right. And so this official, Kevin McLeod, was uh, an order and council appointee, um, effectively at the level of a deputy minister, if I recall. And uh, he helped kind of organize a lot of uh, the Harper government's emphasis on the monarchy and helped set up the, uh, the committee that, that helped appoint by, uh, lieutenant governors and governors general. So they kind of gave a larger role to that official. When the Trudeau government came in, they – downgraded that position, put it back at Heritage, if I understand correctly. And now they've brought it back in, not as an order and council appointment, but as an appointment of an official who works in machinery of government. So the reason... What's the difference? Just quickly. Well, basically, so the, the person who's currently the Secretary of the Queen is also, also has a, other jobs in machinery of government, and it's not their primary job, right, is the way I would put it. They do that alongside other machinery of government issues. Um, but it's it makes sense... Initially, I think, because there was a recognition, I would argue, probably, an understanding that the monarchy is going through a bit of a period of transition. Um, <laughs> so, so sorry, yeah, when was, when was this again? Just recently. Just, just recently? Just, just this is fall. before all this? Yeah, or? this is before all this. Oh, that was is, good timing. Yeah, it was kind of fortuitous, right? That um, right now, at least you have somebody who is able to serve as a direct connection between uh, the prime minister's office, the Privy Council office, and the palace on some of these questions. So it was fortuitous that that decision was made. Uh, and I think it does demonstrate, you know, um, I don't think it's a dem I don't think it's a, a signal that we're that the Trudeau government has suddenly become monarchical and, and royal fever or anything like that. But it's a reflection of the fact that there are practical issues that do come up and practical issues that are likely to come up more and more in the next few years with Harry, with an aging monarch, with an aging Prince Philip. You know, there's a lot of this stuff that has to be ironed out in terms of what how the government of Canada responds to these things. Right. Okay. So we're turning back to Governor General yes. question. Speaking of the monarch in Canada uh, and and her representative, there have been some stories recently uh, with regards to a, a, a Governor General a, a decade ago, uh, Mikhail Jean, mm -hmm. and that she. And, and we should emphasize here that, you know, these are rumors we, we don't know, but there, there have been stories that she may have been trying to uh, issue some orders that were um, 
that that raised some concern. Do you want to speak yeah, to this? Yeah, so we don't know exactly what happened, and it's always been kind of hush-hush, and people, you know, you always have to be careful about where you're getting your information from because it could be people who have an agenda against Mikhail Jean. Or a grievance, yeah. Right. So, but they're, they're, for those of us that are kind of interested both in the Crown and the military. Crown you know, nerds. Yeah, Crown military nerds. There was this issue that came up that she had apparently, uh, when the earthquake in Haiti happened, called up um, National Defense Headquarters and tried to encourage them to prepare for a response. Was it an order? Probably not. Uh, but did it go beyond simply trying to get information? And I think that's the point of tension, right? The point of tension is twofold. First, um, was it an order? Probably not. But was it kind of a, a strong suggestion, right? And equally important, when is it appropriate for a governor in general to call a department directly and when should they be dealing with the PM or the relevant minister instead, right? And that's what this issue largely touches on. Um, because the governor general, okay, so we're going to have to back up here yeah. for just a second because she, you know, we, we've talked about this position in the kind of the abstract. We've never really delved into it. Right. Right. And so – um, the governor general, we talk, okay, this now, this person now represents the queen in Canada. So on, on paper, or it may seem the fact that this person may then have the queen's powers to actually order the military around and, and to do something because the commander of the Canadian forces is in fact the queen. Right. So, I mean, the, the governor general, formally speaking, right, is at the uh, – does have the queen's powers including and can exercise arguably the queen's powers um, of command in chief. And they have and, – and the governor general has a uniform. Right. So that's uh, – it's a bit of a separate issue actually. L let's just break this down. Okay. So the, the office of command in commander in chief is a longstanding British office. Um, it existed, you know, well into the 17th century. You would have captains general or commanders in chief. Uh, and basically it used to be the, you know, the senior general basically that the monarch would appoint to run campaigns. Um, into the 19th century, however, it became a symbolic office and it became a very big point of tension because um, – the Gladstone cabinet and others were trying to exert full and final civilian control of the military in the UK. And so the, cabinet control of the yeah, military, yeah. And through the, through the relevant Secretary of State. And this was a point of tension because you had a, a commander-in-chief at the time who was basically head of the army who felt and the queen felt, Victoria at the time, that they, the army effectively belonged directly to, to the monarch. And so it was a, this idea that there was this direct connection between the king or the monarch and the queen and the armed forces in the UK. So at one point, the British cabinet just got fed up of this and said enough. So they eliminated the position of commander-in-chief in 1904, created the chief of the general staff, right, which is now the person that runs the army. So that created this. Who, who's responsible to cabinet? Right, and now in the UK. In the UK, and so we no longer had this commander in chief. So in 1905, the uh, new letters patent were issued for the governor general in Canada that created the office of commander in chief in Canada. Now, why does that exist? Basically, if you look at the 1867 Constitution, we discussed this in the last podcast. Um, why do you have this section 15 that says that? 
the command of all military in and of Canada is vested in the Queen because at the time in the British Empire, you didn't want Canada creating armed forces that suddenly weren't disposable, weren't at the disposition of the British, the British Empire. Right? right. So you needed to have this kind of connection where a British officer could lay claim in defense of Canada to Canadian forces. And so you create this office of commander-in-chief, put it in the governor-general, which is at the time in 1905 still a representative of the British government in Canada. So it makes sense to kind of keep that continuity, right? And uh, just to be clear, you said letters patents. Yeah. Those are, that's basically instructions? That's the instructions. Right, those are the instructions. Governor General, do this. Do this. Here are your powers. Right. Over time, it's kind of evolved, right? What, what does that office actually mean? So right now, um, effectively, it's become – kind of the uh, a symbolic head of the armed forces that isn't the prime minister because that's the whole point of having like a separate head of government, head of state. Loyalty, the ultimate loyalty of the armed forces is to the crown. Uh, the, it's the queen's commission. The governor general signs it and the queen owns you for life with a commission. Like even after you leave the military, they can still call you up. It's feudal basically in origin. They own you, right? You have the queen's commission and you're hers for life. Um and as we've seen in a number of court cases, they still swear allegiance to the queen and that's been upheld in court contrary to some military officers that argue they shouldn't have to do that. But all this to say, you have this physical representation in Canada of a civilian, a representative of the crown that's not the prime minister who can be the source of loyalty, right? And a symbol of loyalty for the armed forces. So she, it's good to have... Uh, a governor general show up wearing a uniform, being kind of the object or or, or direction of loyalty in the symbol of exactly crown of, authority. of the state yeah. of representing to Canadians to themselves, representing Canadians to the armed forces, and all this and all that, without having it the government of the day. Okay, what it doesn't do though is grant this person a place in the chain of command. <laughs> okay, right, right, and this is the key kind of thing. If you look at the National Defense Act, it's very clear. Right, through Section 18, that the chain of command effectively runs from the governor and council. So the governor general, not the commander-in-chief in that case, the governor general acting on the advice of cabinet can issue directives and orders to the armed forces through the chief of the defense staff. So the commander-in-chief is not in that chain, right? And I think that's where a lot of confusion has surrounded that particular aspect of the office because GGs kind of come in, they're told they're commander-in-chief, they've got this uniform, they have kind of connections with the military, and we know David Johnson had very close ties with uh, Tom Lawson, for example, so they met on a regular basis. I mean, Tom he, Lawson being? Uh, former chief of the defense staff. Right. So you develop these kind of relationships, and it's important for, you know, that's the other aspect of this job is the commander-in-chief, given that the Crown has a special relationship with the armed forces, likes to, should listen to what's happening with the armed forces, what concerns they have, how their welfare is. And actually they, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they can request like things like intelligence briefings. They have, oh, yeah. they have the Absolutely. clearance to, to get like briefings on what's happening yeah. and things like this. And I was, I was just in, uh, speaking with somebody who knew Prime Minister Harper's relationship with the GG quite well. And he would send reports of, uh, weekly reports of what happened in cabinet to the governor general and the governor general could then ask questions if necessary and be informed. So and, like they're, they're totally powerless, but they don't have that power. No, and the, and the whole point is the reason they have that, the reason they can meet with deputy ministers, the reason they can meet with ministers, the reason they can meet with the chief of the defense staff is to ask questions to then be better informed when they meet the prime minister to advise 
and warn and encourage the prime minister in certain areas. So it's kind of like a third-party voice within government that has access to all the information, can't speak publicly about it, but is doesn't have a stake in it, right? Like they can't – they don't – they're not vying for power. They're already in the top job, second highest job. So when they meet with the prime minister – like they're in a position – they're in a better position to ask questions, to push them on things or to advise them in a way that you know, their immediate advisors aren't and their cabinet ministers aren't because of the power dynamic that exists between the prime minister and the rest of cabinet, between the prime minister and his or her party and between the prime minister and their advisors. The governor general has this kind of ability if they choose to exercise it and if the prime minister chooses to allow it to – provide this kind of independent source of counsel, right? But to do that, they need to have access to, to all this information. So the in the GG's relationship with the military, they uh, – and this is interesting in the National Defense Act. They have uh, a direct relationship with the Judge Advocate General. The Judge Advocate General in law is the legal advisor to the Governor General on matters of military law. So and you can imagine there's situations like um, Russell Williams – who was an officer in the armed forces who ultimately created uh, – Who was a serial killer. Uh, serial killer and sexual assault. When you strip that person of their commission, that has to come from the governor general and they need to know how the legal implications of that all work out, right? So the governor general, given their particular duties, needs to have independent access to in legal advice regarding military law through the judge advocate general. So there's all these relationships. It's a big web. So what this authority doesn't grant the governor general though is the ability to get involved in decisions that belong with responsible ministers. And this is where there's that tension. Um, if you are doing things that ultimately a minister later has to take responsibility for, the minister should probably be the one making the call. Right. This gets back to this whole yeah. thing about, you know, the really kind of the heart of this podcast, how do ministers become responsible for yep. things? Then they're held accountable. Yep. Governor general can't be held accountable. Well, they, I mean, they, they can, but a responsible minister has to be the one that takes, takes it on the chin. Oh, right? right. And this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, the kind of test that I've put out there is if it's a matter that could end up as a question in the house of commons, the GG shouldn't be the one, you know, deciding or getting involved. Right. It's, uh, their best position, they can advise, they can warn, they can encourage, they should call up the PM, call up the minister, and in all likelihood, whatever Madame Jean did, I have no doubt and that when that call was placed into NDHQ, if if she, it, yeah, if then it was. she, if it was or however it was done, the first thing that was probably said was, you know, thank you, ma'am, we'll take whatever it is you're saying under advisement, but if you have particular concerns, you should probably call the PM or the minister. But the very fact that, you know, I think the underlying issue is not that she called, it's that is there a proper understanding of the role within the, within uh, Rideau Hall of, of what that that position grants in terms of authority and what the expectation governors general have. And are they of, briefed appropriately? Right. Or do they know what, the, what that role is and have we talked about it enough? Well, when Harry becomes our governor general, <laughs> hopefully you'll give him a good briefing. There you go. Okay. Uh, Phil, this has been an enlightening uh, podcast as always. I'm always, you know, now I'm interested, right? Now I'm go. interested. <laughs> um, but hopefully we'll have you on because I don't think these crown issues are going away, but also, um, you know, down the line, there's going to be more reports on uh, defense intelligence and the 
the prerogative power. So we're going to talk about that. I also kind of maybe want to delve a little bit deeper on uh, the role of prerogative powers and intelligence and national security, which I think you're actually also have a big project on. Yes. So, so that's a big focus of my research. So we can kind of talk it over and um, it'd be interesting to also do a comparative study of it. Like how, where, how do we look as compared to some of the others? Because ultimately, you know, as good social scientists, we can talk about policy transfer and contagion and uh, this is something particularly in the intelligence realm. If we're the, if Canada ends up being the first one that really legislates for defense intelligence, is that going to have a contagion effect across the other Westminster Common, countries? Yeah. yeah, and that'll be interesting to know. Thank you so much. Um, and you know, uh, whatever happens, uh, Prince Harry. Hopefully, uh, you enjoyed this podcast. I'm sure uh, it'll be briefed up to you. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Uh, I hope you enjoy your status, non-status. Thank you so much. Thanks.